0: Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny. Today is our Doctors versus Bankers episode where we are going to sit down with two incredibly talented and accomplished doctors who work in completely different fields and explore the difference between choosing a career path in medicine versus one in finance. And for those of you who are new here, I'm Jen. I'm Kristen. And we are two lifelong friends with a combined 25 years of experience working and teaching on Wall Street, and we're here to give you the skinny on everything you've always wanted to know about high-paying and prestigious careers, but we're too afraid to ask. So Kristen is joining us today with a super stylish boot on her foot.
1: You want to yeah, well, tell everyone I, what happened to you? I stubbed my toe on Monday and then decided that it would be a great idea to walk the three miles to pick up my kid from school. And then when I came home, noticed that my whole foot was turning purple. Like, it wasn't just my toe. It was like, I don't know, a third to then a half of my foot. Oh my so God. I'm pretty sure I broke some kind of bone in my foot. I don't know if it's just the toe. I uh, And that actually kind of brings us to what we're going to be talking about today. I was literally messaging Misha, who's one of our guests. I was like, does this look like it's broken? Because my, actually, my nanny kept telling me, she's like, go to the doctor. I'm like, no, they're not going to do anything. I'll order a boot on Amazon. Even if it's broken, what are they going to do? They're going to x-ray me, and that's about it. Like, I, I can just get a boot. So I do use Nisha, like I'll message her, be like, do I need to go to the doctor for this? She validated what I thought, which was you don't need to, but like stay off of it and take it easy. So, yeah, that
0: thing is definitely <laughs> like, broken. I am not a doctor. And I'm like, that is at least a broken toe. I feel so bad yeah. for you. It looks like. Well, so it's definitely
1: painful. a broken toe, but like it's the rest of it. And of course, yeah, it's, it's like nicely break the rest of your foot. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm so angry because, I mean, in Massachusetts, it's like really effing cold and it's finally nice out. And um. I want to be able to go out and go like walk and all that, but I can't. So I guess the good news though is that meant that I was uh, extra productive.
0: Yeah, I think everyone needs to have those people in their lives who, for better or worse, didn't sign up for this task, but are like your go-to consults on like, hey, something's wrong. And should I go to the doctor or whatever? And unfortunately, mine Mm -hmm. is the guy who lived next door to me my freshman year in college, Michael Davenport, who's like, Jen, I'm a urologist. I can't give you advice about your sinus infection or your kids, whether or not they need to get stitches. Like this is not my area. Although Uh, they
1: they can prescribe meds. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) But um, like, I'm really excited that this is actually going to go out. We were really worried that this episode was going to not actually see the light of day because Bella and Nisha, the two doctors we have on, are probably like two of the smartest people I know, but also they're like us where they are absolutely just technological neophytes. And so there was more issues with this episode than I think we have ever had before. And so <laughs> anyway, I'm like so excited that this is actually going to go out because there's there's a lot of kind of really interesting stuff that we got into in this.
0: Yeah. And we promised to do this episode for a while now because we have so many people who I think have thought about careers in either banking or medicine for various reasons. And and they're both kind of conventionally considered good jobs, right? They're very well-respected, but the paths couldn't be more different. Mm -hmm. Think about it. From a credentialing standpoint, you can break into finance right out of undergrad. And sure, some people get MBAs, but technically you don't even need to have a high school diploma to be able to work on Wall Street. Now, obviously, I mean, listen, these days it's insanely competitive and you don't hear too many of those, like, I started in the mailroom and now I'm Jamie Dimon kind of stories. But the amount of specific schooling necessary to enter the financial services industry is actually minimal. For mm-hmm. doctors, that couldn't be farther from the truth. And so we're yeah. going to get into the education path, the training, the compensation, and the lifestyle for doctors in different fields. And then next yeah. week, actually, we're going to back-to-back this with bringing on two of Kristen's former co-workers who currently work in healthcare PE so we can understand the finance on the other side of all this.
1: And actually, I mean, look, we're going to, this episode, we are going to get into some of the bigger philosophical challenges in the medical world that have resulted in just actually kind of an alarming amount of brain drain. And Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we get into is actually the stark difference between the U.S. medical system and more socialized medicine in, say, Canada, Mm -hmm. which actually is where one of our guests is from. And it was particularly interesting because, again, so Nisha is Canadian and had a much better view of it than Bella. Bella was actually born and raised in Russia uh, before coming to the U.S. when she was seven. And after we stopped recording was telling me how, just like as a general practice, like if there was someone just as an example, right, in Russia who had say a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, they would be treated with removal of like all their female reproductive organs rather than just say the affected fallopian tube, unless her and her family, like without being asked, voluntarily gifted money or like merchandise or whatever to entice the surgeon to perform a better surgery. You had to like <laughs> and so
0: bribe them. That's crazy. You basically
1: had to bribe them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it's also worth noting that in Canada, there's tons of benefits. It, it is actually free, right? People in Canada also though can wait ages for gallbladder removal, knee replacements, because those are not really seen as an emergency. Here though, if you are in the U S you can basically get that in like a week, if you don't care about your surgeon, or even if you are particular, you can pretty much get it soon after. And mm-hmm. you know, Another question that Bella was getting into, like, well, how do they handle end-of-life care, right? In the U.S., you go to the ER, you don't have insurance. They have to treat you and give you the absolute best medical care, regardless of your finances. Like, they're not going to say, hey, you can pay for this or you can't. It's just we treat you, and then we deal with it after. Now, you might end up Mm -hmm. leaving the ER with crippling medical debt, but, like, at least you're not dead. The other question that you know you have with countries with socialized medicine is how much money are they going to actually throw at treating one patient. They probably don't have a lot of the crazy medicines available at the hospitals that we have here and mm-hmm. you know here in the US if you have a 92-year-old who comes in and is dying and the family like wants to pursue treatment. You're still going to try to keep them alive paying right. thousands and thousands of dollars. It's just how it is here, but it's, it's just something. Like I said, there's so many aspects to kind of looking at it. And the one last thing that Bella messaged me after the fact, we get into pay. And so pay is something for doctors that we didn't like use hard ages, but. If you're going through the path of trying to get a a medical degree and actually start earning money, you're going to go to medical school after you graduate a four-year degree. You then come out and you do your residency fellowship. So that means like you're not earning real money until you're like 31 or 32 and part mm-hmm. of the reason is that when you're in what's called the residency program which again we're going to get into basically the way that medical the residents are paid is it's actually set federally like they're paid out of medicare and medicaid which is the money that mm-hmm. basically goes to people who can't afford or people who are sort of very old and so they're not going to like start paying residents more money because that's going to come out of the money that goes to people who who need that to actually get medical treatment so it's one of these things where because of just the structure of everything it results in brain drain where people maybe want to go into being a doctor, but like, they just don't have the resources to get to the point where they can actually start to earn a living. So yeah. anyway,
0: I think this is going to be a great conversation. Let's bring them on.
1: So, we are so excited because today we are joined by Dr. Bella Avanesian and Dr. Nisha Narayanan. Bella is a, Dr. Bella is a board certified plastic surgeon with a focus on transgender surgery. Nisha is, Dr. Nisha is double board certified in pediatrics and pediatric ER emergency medicine. So, you might be wondering why the heck do we have a bunch of doctors on the podcast and The reason is that most people who have considered finance have also probably considered medicine, law, and any of these types of high-powered jobs. And so I know personally, I uh, at one point considered going into medicine. I don't know, Jen, if you ever did. but Law for me,
0: of the doctor, lawyer, banker (laughs) jobs that like everyone with that traditional family who is telling them Mm -hmm. to go out and get a quote-unquote good job. Mine was the law side. Yours was the doctor Uh, side. Yeah. And And we'll do a lawyer podcast here soon.
1: So Bella was one of my best friends from college. We did biomedical engineering together, and then we lived in the city together. And Nisha also happens to be my sister-in-law, so I know both of you guys very well. But if you wouldn't mind, can you guys give us a quick rundown of your bios, where you went to school, what you studied, and then what you do right now? So I guess let's start with Bella, and then we'll do Nisha second.
2: Wow, thanks. Kristen and Jen for having us, and thanks for the introductions. I'm Bella Avanesian. I did my undergrad studies at Brown with Kristen. I focused on biomedical engineering, got a Bachelor of Science in that, and then went on to the medical school also at Brown, plastic surgery residency also (laughs) at Brown. And then finally, 14 years later, I moved to New York for a transgender surgery fellowship, the first in the nation by about a month. And cool. I stayed, which I did not expect to do. And I still continue mm-hmm. to be here in the same practice where I did my fellowship training. And I'm very happy.
1: That's awesome. Cool. And by the way, Bella, I also just like want to shout out because you got into, it's called the Pleamy program where you could basically apply and get accepted into med school as an incoming freshman. And I feel like most of the Pliny kids decided to study, I don't know, like underwater basket weaving. Like they took the least number of recs that they had to because they were already in med school. And Bella was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to study biomedical engineering. That seems fun. (laughs) And it was like basically one of the hardest... You know, because it was like the most demanding, but it was, you know, because you obviously loved the engineering side, which makes sense that you then ultimately chose plastics. Uh, So Nisha, do you want to give, I guess, your quick bio and then we can dive into why you guys chose the specialties you did?
3: Yeah, totally. Thank you so much for having me on. So I went to school at UC Berkeley where I made up my major called the humanization of modern medicine because you can do that at a hippie school.
1: Um, you're preaching to the choir here. You got Brown and we got, we got Berkeley. So yeah.
3: And so I mean, I figured I had to take the pre-med requirements anyway. Like before college, I knew I wanted to go into medicine. So I thought it would be helpful to learn about the parts of medicine that you don't necessarily learn in med school, like health policy, statistics, medical ethics, health economics. I took a biomedical engineering class. I took a (laughs) class on like death and dying, which was actually my favorite class ever, um, that kind of thing. Um, And then I went to med school at the George Washington University School of Medicine with a focus or an area of specialization in health policy. And then I did my residency in pediatrics at UC Irvine Children's Hospital, Orange County, And I like to ping pong back and forth from Mm -hmm. coast to coast. So I did my fellowship at NYU Langone Bellevue Hospital in Pediatric Emergency Medicine. And now I'm a Pediatric Emergency Medicine attending in Manhattan. And I'm at an academic medical center with like a burn center and a trauma center, which is super cool. So yeah,
1: there's... So much that you guys had to do to get to the point where you can actually practice medicine. I mean, it's credential after credential after credential. So we are going to get into that. Uh, But before we do that, I, I do actually, I'd love to kind of hear why you guys chose the specialties you did. So again, with Bella, why you decided to go into plastics, why you ended up deciding to focus on transgender surgery. And then Nisha, what made you decide you wanted to do not only pediatrics, but then specifically pediatric ER.
2: So I liked the idea of plastic surgery. It was actually one of the only things I was interested in heading into medical school and I liked it for a number of reasons. I think mostly because it is very engineering-based. A lot of it is much more engineering and problem-solving and uh, thinking about how to work through any given problem to find a fitting solution. And there may be more than one solution also. So I liked oh, wait, that. Say expl- more,
0: what, what makes plastics more engineering-based than say general surgery?
2: So in general surgery, you're tasked with an end goal. Like, remove the diseased organ, remove the gallbladder, fix the hernia, fix the hole. And there's a standardized approach for doing that. And you do the same thing individualized for the patient, but with very little variability each time. There's different anatomy, but day in, day out, pretty similar. And you make the patient as good as they were, hopefully, before they had the sleep. <laughs> uh-huh. And then. In plastic surgery, usually you're working with patients regarding a problem that they're having and something that needs to get improved or optimized, or you're inheriting problems that other surgeons have created through Mm. delivering care, like Uh removing a tumor and leaving a hole with maybe a bony deficit, soft tissue deficit that you need to fix and cover. So there's a lot of problem solving that's individualized for the specific problem that you're facing for that individual patient, as well as their different Uh anatomy and certain patient specifications that come into play. So it's interesting. And there's a lot of optimization, very Mm -hmm. engineering-like. I also love the instant gratification that plastic surgery offers. You see the change right away. And in in transgender surgery specifically, the healing process is very dynamic. So it evolves a lot over time. And it's interesting to make little changes, barely noticeable changes seemingly in surgery. And then seeing like the full evolution of that change close to a year later with complete healing and continuing to optimize your procedure so that you get consistent end result. That's great. So it's that's so interesting
0: too, because you have to do so much. I imagine in terms of translating, you know, not everybody is going to necessarily be skilled at communicating to you exactly what they want. You know, it's like a hairstylist. When you come in, you bring in a picture of JLo and you say, I want her hair. And was like, okay, I have something to work off of. But like, guess what? You're never going to look like J-Lo. That requires plastic surgery. Now here you are. <laughs> and again, someone's going to come to you say, I want plastic surgery. I want this outcome. I want to feel this way about myself. I want to present this to the world as a representation of who I am on the inside, on the outside. And you have to interpret all of that, however they communicate it to you, and say, I think it means this, and I can deliver this, and manage those expectations, too, of, again... I, no matter how much plastic surgery I get, and I intend to get lots, I will never look <laughs> like JLo, but like the best approximation of whatever is going to make me feel happy. I mean, that's a huge responsibility. And then add in obviously gender affirming surgery goes beyond, oh,
2: I don't really like my nose. <laughs> Yeah, we do get into the nitty gritty and really focusing on the feature that's bothering the patient, the specific elements of that feature that are bothering the patient, what's possible with surgery, and is this realistic? So there's a lot of discussion and a lot of reframing of thought. The other thing I really love about plastic surgery is that often you're making the patient better in the end than they once were, as opposed to a lot of different surgical and medical fields where the most you can hope for is to get them to where they started before they had whatever problem they had. So that's and rewarding.
1: No, that makes so much sense. Nisha, do you want to talk about why you picked pediatrics and then ultimately specialized in pediatric ER?
3: (laughs) Yeah. So the way that it works in pediatric emergency medicine is that you can do A pediatrics residency and then a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine, or you can do an emergency medicine residency and then do a fellowship in pediatrics. Um, And the former is generally preferred by hospitals because you get more training in pediatrics um, and that's like your primary skill set. So I chose to go into pediatrics because kids don't really follow the rules. They constantly surprise you. They're physically and mentally resilient. And they're like, they're not really supposed to be sick. So they don't get Mm. sick because they wear out. Their pathology is very interesting and the illnesses they present with are fascinating and they respond really, really well to treatment. So like, Uh You can have a patient who is literally on the verge of death and a couple days later, they're like cracking jokes and walking out of the hospital, which happens much less often with adults. And they do ridiculous things. So your interactions with them, even in the hospital, even in terrible situations, are often joyful. Mainly because, I mean, it's not their fault. They're sick and they shouldn't be sick. So you feel this duty to do like everything you possibly can to fight for them. If that makes sense. I don't know. there's also I mean, this yeah, really... not to
0: imply that you're like blaming patients our age. Like, I mean. But, like you you, know? you, you
3: like really feel for them, you know, like if I have to stay an hour late, like it's worth it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's also this really cool opportunity you have to make a lasting impact on their lives. That was really long winded, but that's, that's kind of why I went into pediatrics and then why I went into emergency medicine. One the pace and variety of work in the ED is energizing. And I really love the lack of routine. Like you never know what to walk through the door and you can't prepare for it. So you, you know, you get first crack at diagnosing the patients, you stabilize them, you run traumas and resuscitations, and you're also doing procedures. So you get that instant gratification that Bella talked about. And you Mm. feel very connected to, like, what's going on in the world because it always kind of shows up in the ED.
0: What do you mean about what's going – you feel connected to what's going on in the world because it shows up in the ED? No, you, like, have your pulse on, like, what's happening in
3: society. So, like, when we had an influx of refugees in New York, they all came into the ED. Like, when RSB. Mm kind of was surging, or when COVID was surging, the ED saw it first. When COVID first started happening, we had all these patients who came in from Wuhan before it was in the news. And so it's like, you you have your pulse on what's happening. I remember in residency, my PEDS ED rotation taking me to, this sounds like corny, but like, it took you like physical, mental, and like emotional extremes. You have this like uncertainty. And I kind of thought like, this is where I want to be right in the center of it all, in this environment of controlled chaos. And now I'm just Mm. tired.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're also, for the record, Nisha also has a three-month-old. So you're also in the thick of it with a newborn. Which uh...
3: No, which is great because I'm like used to the schedule of a newborn. So it's like not bad at all. (laughs) But I think it would take more energy for me to like have to plan. When you prepare for a patient and plan for a patient, that to me requires more energy than having a problem come in and not having time to prepare, but trying to figure out like on the fly how to solve it.
1: I was going to say, it's probably very, like, adrenaline-inducing.
3: Sometimes. Sometimes the thing is, too, is, like, there, there aren't emergencies. Like, sometimes it's, like, a perfectly healthy kid, and the parents are really anxious, and mm. it's really cool to be able to, like, reassure them. Or my favorite patient are, like, kids who, like, stick things in <sighs> orifices. And it's just, it's so, cause they're always so proud of themselves. And you're like, what, like why? Like, it's always the kid who has like two things in each nose and like a thing in like, their ear. Like good job
0: getting a carrot up each nostril. Seriously, <laughs> and the parents and are really devastated, proud of it. And, and yeah, and the kids like, But, but like, yes. you like
3: solve their problem. You know what I mean? Like it's really enjoyable. Everyone leaves really happy. And you're like, that was great. And it didn't require. Yeah, like no one was actually harmed in, so the, really in the fun. making of this
0: emergency. <laughs>
3: totally. Um, I think it's cool. Like you have that diversity of, you have this non-urgent procedure. You have the like kid who comes in coding, which is terrible, but you know, it does get your adrenaline running. And then because it's shift work, you have, I do like a lot of research. And so you can kind of confront the social complexities that like burden your patients with advocacy and with research, which I think is really interesting. And like, I think is really cool. So it offers you a nice variety of stuff.
0: Yeah, the closest analogy in our field where we have a little bit of a niche is really the difference between investment banking proper, the corporate advisory side of a bank and the sales and trading world, right? In corporate advisory, you work on these projects. Like you said, Bella, you know, you don't really see the final outcome for up to a year as that healing process takes place. And Nisha, you're in the thick of it and you're tackling things as they come in. There's not a ton of prep. If mm-hmm. anything, you said that's something that you don't like about the job or wouldn't be interesting to you about the job. You like reacting to things on the fly. And that's much more akin to that markets facing side of our business. So it's interesting to see how those parallels exist in a totally unrelated field in medicine (laughs) with much higher stakes of actual life and death versus rich people maybe making or losing more (laughs) money. But I just think that's really fascinating. And I hadn't thought about that.
1: So I feel like this is a really good place to now talk a little bit about what it takes to get to being a doctor. I I would love to talk about the education, what are those prereqs, the MCAS, getting into medical school, the matching. What does it take to get to be an adult doctor, like the attending?
2: Nisha's better equipped to answer the first question of getting to medical school because I didn't actually apply to medical schools the standard way. As you said, when I was a pleamy, I was fortunate enough to have an in at the med school as long as I maintained my GPA and took a couple prerequisite courses. I didn't have to take the MCAT and I didn't apply to other med schools. So I just checked a box and proceeded on to the med school because I forgot to apply to jobs in engineering. So- (laughs) (laughs) I am where I am today accidentally, and now I wouldn't change anything, but there was a lot I didn't know about the process. And medical school is tough. It's two years of learning all the information, taking step one, which is a certification exam to confirm that you know all of the basics of being a doctor, and then two years of clinicals where you go on different rotations medical and surgical in nature and learn the how-to of being a doctor. Again, the basics before you pick your specialty and apply out. Okay. Nisha.
1: Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. Nisha. <laughs> so
3: so um, I'm trying to think. So I did four years of undergrad and then you do four years of med school. And by your third year, you have to take all the prerequisites. So it's like biology, chemistry, organic chemistry. Like there's a there's couple of classes. There's, yeah, there's like an English track, you know, it, it, basic sciences mainly. And then you take the MCAT and then you start kind of the application process. So it's like this long document where you list all of your volunteer experiences and like your research experiences and write a personal statement about like why you want to go into medical school. And then you apply the year before you want to go in. And so The medical school applications, actually, I love it. I think it's much better than like the residency and the fellowship applications because it's not a matching process. So like Mm -hmm. you apply to schools, you get callbacks for interviews, and then you get offers from them. And then you get to decide where you actually want to go and where you want to spend the next couple of years, which is really nice. And you can also defer. So like I actually took a year off school and went backpacking for a year. And like oh, hanging out cool. with friends from college, you can do that, which is really cool. <laughs> so four years of undergrad, four years of med school, then you do your residency and that's a matching process. So the way that works is you you figure out what specialty after going through all the rotations and everything that you want to focus on. And then you apply to all the programs that you want to go to. They'll call you back for interviews. And then the way it works is that you list from your most desirable to the least desirable place that you interviewed. And then the programs list their most desirable to least desirable candidates. And there's like this mysterious (laughs) computer algorithm that matches you to this program. And so you open an envelope on match day and it like essentially tells you where you're going to spend the next four to six years of your life, which is terrifying. Uh, but uh, yeah, seriously. Yeah. Cause you have no choice. It's like a legally binding commitment. Like once you decide <laughs> oh, to go, wow. you just have to go. So yeah, so, that like, was fun. But it's nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I like, couples matched with my ex-boyfriend, but that's how I ended up in, in LA. <laughs> Wait, is that a you know, thing? Yeah. So, so can, like, like if you're dating someone in med school, because of this match process and you yeah. like don't want to be, they want you like, to be separated. happy. Yeah, well, happy-ish. So, like you, <laughs> <laughs> so you hire applications together. It'll make sure that you get a residency program. It doesn't have to be the same program. Like it can be like it programs in close proximity, but like you are responsible for tying your applications.
0: Interesting.
2: It's like well, adopting yeah. a pair of bonded dogs from the shelter.
3: <laughs> Essentially, yeah.
2: Can <laughs> also become really dramatic because there are different tiers of couples matching. Like some Ooh. people, some think couples match like same Regions, but others. If that doesn't work out, they like insert their single matches. Oh, which, yeah! I like we, totally. I, we did that. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: it does you submit multiple much. couples' matches that nobody knows about the other one. You're like, listen, <laughs> if this guy gets in here, I'm going.
1: <laughs> Go with this other dude. <laughs> oh, no, no, God, no, no! Like, no. screw that guy.
0: Like,
3: it is um, crazy though because you don't have control over your life, right? And I was super young. I didn't really care. I can't imagine how nerve-wracking it is if you have kids or, or a wife. Like, it's terrifying. You can get, if you want to go into, like, a, you know, really, really competitive specialty and you're hellbent on it, you could end up somewhere where you have no social support during, like, a very trying time, which is very yeah. scary. Mm.
2: So... <laughs>
0: I, as a lay person, have watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy. And I remember the first episode of Grey's Anatomy because I've watched it. I've, like, studied it. But, you know, there's the beginning sequence where they bring all the interns into the room and they say, like, look around you. Only one out of every three will be here at the end of the program. And, again, there's a very similar vibe when you either start your summer internship in finance or show up as a first-year analyst of like look around you like most people won't be here by the end of your second year or whatever it is like we definitely had that speech at Lehman Brothers as well I'm curious like none of you will be here in two years. <laughs> yeah the company won't be here in two years but you might be uh, that was a different story but I'm curious how realistic is that like cutthroat depiction of those programs that you see on silly tv that i adore
2: it depends on the type of program you're in and mm-hmm. on gray's anatomy they're all general surgeons and mm-hmm. there are very cush and kumbaya general surgery residencies but then there are really cutthroat ones and to give an example the one at Rhode Island Hospital where i trained uh-huh. i was part of the general surgery program for the first 3 years of my plastic surgery training and that was pretty accurate. You know, Really? Wow! Um, actually Grey's Anatomy and the things that you see, at least in the first season, I remember there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of competition. You also have your friends mm-hmm. who support you. And half of my intern year class of general surgeons left at the end of the first year
3: pediatrics is a little bit less cutthroat, but they really put you through the ringer. When we started, there wasn't like, we never got the speech of like, half of you aren't going to be here. But like, there was definitely like this sentiment that like half of you might be dead. It was like, (laughs) no, I mean, like you're waking up at 5 a.m. or earlier every day and you get to work and you're expected to do all these things. It's physically impossible to do all the things you're expected to do. The ACGME or like whatever governing body says you're supposed to go home at a certain time. Like, do you think any of us went home at that time? No. So like, There are many times where you get to work at 5am, you don't leave till midnight or one or two, and then you start the next day again. I barely remember it because I was like so sleep deprived.
2: But I had a good time. I think my perspective on residency having gone through surgical residency is a little different. Mm -hmm. Like sure, you're in the trenches, you're working hundreds of hours, Uh, you're exhausted. The only people around you are your core group of friends, you live and breathe Mm -hmm. with the other residents, particularly those in your year, and they become your lifelong friends. And it's because you've gone through the pits of hell together. It's trauma bonding. (laughs) But I, I do think it's a necessary stepping stone to become a successful, capable surgeon, at least. Because at first, yes, you're doing everything, but you're learning to do it efficiently. But it also teaches you really how to take care of patients when they're okay, when they're sick, how to identify like the earliest signs of someone getting sick. And then in surgical training, how to operate, when to operate, when not to operate, and really later to hone your skill and make those judgment calls about what the best choice of treatment is when there are multiple options. And at least for me, residency got better every year because my attendings knew me, the other residents knew me, they knew my interests and my skill set. And if they asked me to cover a case on a different service, on a different rotation than I was on, they would try to give me the case that they knew would appeal to me. And then in plastic surgery, I was finally doing what I wanted to do. And the field is so broad, we operate head to toe, on all the different tissues, all the bones of the hands and forearms in the face. Um, It's a lot. So I think that in terms of surgical training, particularly plastic surgery training, I think that's a very critical piece to becoming a competent, excellent surgeon. And our attendings were very involved. They not only needed to check our work, which (laughs) <laughs> happens to various degrees, but they also needed to teach us our skill set and let us make our mistakes so they could teach us further. Mm-hmm. And that takes a long time. I think the hellish hours and the prolonged training process for my field, at least, was critical to getting me to where I needed to be. I also think that the program I was in, it was very busy. It was like a, not cutthroat,
3: but I think there was like a a little bit of malignancy between attendings and the residents. And I think now mm-hmm. it's totally different medical education in general and medical training in general. They're taking steps to make it like more humane and more constructive, but yeah. I, it, it was difficult. <laughs> but I think <laughs> that, I think that the way you have to really think about it is that you don't think about it like a job, right? You think about it as your duty or like your life. It's like the way you live and it's necessary thing that you have to go through Hospitals know that. And I actually think now looking back, they take advantage of trainees. And I don't think that that's right. I think that we Mm -hmm. have to be more thoughtful about how we're treating these people because they're doctors and they're like working really, really hard and they're running in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Attendings don't run the hospital. It's the residents who are really doing everything. Kristen hears about me talk about this all the time. It's almost like you're brainwashed. Like when you think about it now, I'm like, yeah, like I probably made like 50 or 60 K and I was working all the time. But again, Mm -hmm. you don't think of it as your job. It's like you're calling your identity almost, right? Think about it. Like I was training for 14 years and that entire time you're assuming an identity. You're learning Uh all these things. And it's like, you should be so grateful that you're learning all these things and that we're paying you to learn. Even though you're doing work, let's not talk about that. Let's (laughs) focus on the fact that you're doing all these things and like you should be grateful that you're doing them. And I think that unfortunately that carries into getting a job too. You know, it's funny because my husband, Kristen's uh, brother, is in finance. And when I was getting my first real contracts, he's like, ask for this or like, argue this or like, why isn't this in it? And I'm like, dude, you can't ask that. Like we don't in academic, like pediatrics, you don't talk about money. That's something that you're not Mm. supposed to talk about. You're not supposed to ask for like compensation for certain things. You're you're supposed to just kind of like do it because you're like a good doctor, like a good person. It's funny. I didn't think anything of it until I like moved to New York. And I'm like, wait, like this entire, I'm like, I feel like a socialist. I'm Canadian. I like, I do not know if it was a right. We shouldn't be like profiting off of people's misfortune but I think that unfortunately in this country, healthcare is a business. And so mm-hmm. it's really hard to reconcile the way you're, you're trained to be altruistic. And then someone else is making $10 million a year, like profiting off of this altruism. There's a Danielle Offrey, like wrote this article in the New York Times a couple of years ago about how the business of healthcare profits off of nurses and doctors' altruism. And it's mm-hmm. true because you have to do all these things that are absolutely impossible to do like in your work hours or in the way that they expect you to do it. But you're doing it for the good of your patients. And that's why you go into
2: medicine, but also like, wait, it's a business. So in a sense, like, yes, should residents be paid more? Absolutely. In a perfect world, residents would be paid way more, especially because a lot of us have loans and they're just accruing interest. So the way that med school and medical education is structured is not with much financial consideration, particularly in what you choose to do after training i yeah. i mean i like totally agree with you i think that
3: the residency is necessary i 100 percent agree that the hours are necessary i do think that we need to to think about like how that affects residents and like treat trainees better and i also think that like part of residency is getting a holistic training in pediatrics you want to rotate through every subspecialty and it may not necessarily be what you want to do but it's important to get kind of that exposure to everything i thought fellowship was like disneyland like oh my god i loved it i did not care how often i was working or how long i was working or anything i think part of it was just that like i went to like this unbelievable program and I had, like you said, these really, really dedicated, wonderful mentors who were kind of like, oh, this is what you want to do. Let me show you how to do X, Y, or Z. And you're really doing exactly what you want to do and like what you've trained for like 12, 13 years to do. So it's really exciting and gratifying.
1: So one thing, because I mean, I, we're throwing out like residency, fellowship. Can you like formally just explain to someone who maybe has never heard of that before? They think like, oh, you go to med school and you graduate, you're a doctor. Like what is... You do. Um, <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> no you don't. No Sorry. the reason yeah. I, the reason I say that is because like you go to med school you graduate you're a doctor so True. like residents are doctors and I think that gets missed a lot like ah they they have finished med school like they're practicing physicians yes Mm -hmm. you need supervision especially because you're learning all of these like Bella said you really are like thrown into the trenches like you start your first day and people are asking you to do things and you're like what the hell like you're in the bathroom like googling stuff sometimes yeah um but it's not terrifying
0: at all as a patient (laughs)
3: no but right like Mm -hmm. it's it's true but there's always supervision you're never Mm -hmm. by yourself there's always someone who you're running it by but it's like learning on the fly
1: so yes, so you graduate, you are a doctor, but you are not a doctor who is at your full earnings potential. You are now a doctor who is still treated like a, you know. You're like yeah. an apprentice, yeah. right? Bubbles. Like is kind of
0: the way I think of it.
2: I think when you graduate med school, you've done all of these rotations and you have a whole wealth of information, a lot of which is never used in medicine. But then the clinical things you've learned on your second two years of medical school, rotating through these rotations, you're on them for up to two months apiece. You're not focused on anything for a prolonged time. So you're really getting a glimpse into the lifestyle and the types of patients and patient care and the types of things that you do as all of these different types of medical and surgical specialties. You're not really coming out of med school capable of removing a gallbladder or of diagnosing a patient start to finish. Like in a perfect world, yes, you would be, but you need a lot of direct supervision and indirect supervision, allowing you to like do that over and over and over again until it becomes so natural to you that it's just part of Mm -hmm. the way you process things where you can come at a certain problem. You need to learn how to think. Exactly, and how to be conscientious in your diagnosis and management and assessment of something.
1: No, that makes complete sense. So you do the fellowship, and or no, so no, you do so the residency, you do, the, and then yeah, you do the the residency fellowship.
3: first, and then if so, you want to specialize after long, residency, you'll do a fellowship. And how like, long is
1: residency? How many years? Or does it, it can, depend? So it specialty? depends
3: on the specialty. So, like in pediatrics, you do a three-year residency in pediatrics, and at the end of a three-year residency, you can do general outpatient pediatrics if you'd like. Or you could do another three-year fellowship, and then you can specialize in something else. I specialized in pediatric emergency medicine, and so I did three years of residency and three years of fellowship. When you're in med school, you're exposed on this like, very wide scale of, like every specialty, right? And then you go into residency, and you're exposed to like every subspecialty of pediatrics. So you like really learn to think like a pediatrician. You learn how to solve problems from a pediatric mm. perspective, and you get the lay of the land. And then after that, if you want to do further training, you can do like a three-year fellowship and then you're doing a deep dive into whatever specialty you choose.
2: Either way, you're doing about six to seven years of training. Wow. On top of the med school. Medical or surgical. If you want to be a subspecialist or you could be mm-hmm. like a doctor as we think. That like a primary care doctor. Yeah. Which I actually think is the
3: hardest field of medicine to be in. You're like a catch-all for everything. You're supposed to, like, see healthy people and sick people, like, everything, Mm -hmm. and you're supposed to deal with all these administrative issues. Those are often the hardest jobs, but you could do that after three years of of residency as opposed to, like, six.
1: It's impossible, by the way, here in Massachusetts to find a primary care doctor. There are none.
3: Well, it's no surprise why. Like, I... Also, well, I guess that's businesses.
1: like, should we talk pay expectations? Is that why? Yeah, or is I, mean, that... I yes,
3: we can talk pay expectations. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, one thing that you had said that I found so fascinating, knowing people that are here in the Northeast and then in obviously in New York, but that basically the pay expectations are almost like inversely correlated to the cost of living. You go to these high cost of living areas. So whether it's Massachusetts or New York or California, and the amount that you can expect to pay is going to be lower than if you were to go to somewhere that, has a lower cost because maybe it's seen as a less desirable location to live. Although I don't know if that's still the case post-COVID because obviously there's been like massive migration to a lot of Southern states. But I would love if you can talk a little bit about just like pay expectations. How does it vary by geography, by specialty? And then also the dichotomy between private practice versus an academic institution, like working for a, a research institution.
3: I think pay expectations vary greatly depending on specialty Less so, like, locations. You know, a, a neurosurgeon in New York is gonna make a lot more than a pediatrician in New York. That's across the board, across the country. So basically what happens is, is most academic institutions in New York pride themselves on paying the, at the median for the country. And this is, this is, I only know pediatrics. In pediatrics, institutions in New York are, like, very happy that they pay at the 50th percentile.
1: Which is I crazy it's, because, by the way, it's a lot more expensive to yeah, live in New York like, than it's, it's, it is. Why they pride themselves on, on that? Why would like, that be a cost pride. of living adjustment? Like, that to me is, like, nuts. Yeah.
3: I mean, I I don't know. But, again, like, it's not something that it's, like, con- it's, you don't really talk about it. You know what I mean? I think that, like, as, like, time has gone on. How do they attract
0: on, the best talent? Like, I, I, well, I don't so understand this, is, this is.
3: <laughs> this is what I find really sad and it's not even institution. They, it's like specialty based. Look, I'm biased. I think kids are the most important people in the
1: country. Like, I, yes. it's just funny, like, especially You're talking about. F- yeah, we're a group of four moms. So we yeah, all, yeah, like, how we all kids agree How many do with we that. have between us? Like, 10? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Belle and I each got three. We got two three. with Jen and one. So six. Seven eight nine. Like, no like, oh, boys This, is, this like, Kristen the, the math whiz.
3: <laughs> we know this. America doesn't value children, and like I could go yeah. on my soapbox, but like they don't. Like teachers Soap don't make enough. Why? Like daycare workers don't make enough. It's so sad because you're trusting your most important thing in your life. No one goes into pediatrics because you want to make money. We know that the average. I mean, it was funny. I, like was looking at a job two days ago. It was like one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars for a general pediatrician. Well, UPS drivers make more than that. And so do, so do Walmart managers. And I don't say that to be mean or derogatory to any of those professions that are very not, important. But I, I also think lives. that it's like they didn't go to like 14 or 15 years of training. And they're not to asked training. to like do all these things for the the children and not get compensated for it. And I don't think I, I really don't think it's about the money. But this is what I realized in the last three months after having a kid is if you get paid less, that means that you can, you, you're spending less time with your kid. Like you're more stressed because you can't afford a nanny. You can't afford a house near where you work. And so I just, I think it's sad because what? I think that, look, if, my, if anything happened to my daughter, I'd want the person taking care of, of her to be well-slept and like not stressed. And I want them to be able to focus on their job. And unfortunately, I think because the cost of living in New York is so high and because the pay is not high, you can't work full time in the pediatric ER and have a child easily, right? And right. like, if well, you do like a schedule, in-
1: that's the other thing. It's like your schedule. So the, again, if you were to hire, like, an, first of all, it's not like you can just like drop your kid at daycare at, you know, 10 PM when you're like leaving for your shift or 7 PM when you're leaving for your shift. Right. That's not when daycare is open. So it's like, you do need to have some kind of in-house. Child care because of the sort of hours, But you hours. well so for but yeah, so this is this
3: is okay, so the way that salary like works, people get reimbursed for for each thing that they do. And that's what like insurance companies base their reimbursements on. Years ago it was decided the reimbursements for kids would be much less than the reimbursements for adults. And so pediatricians are compensated way less than adult doctors despite having the same training or more training and possibly assuming more risk and liability because they're trained to limit testing and to use more clinical judgment. But pediatricians aren't known for the negotiation capabilities. And there are a lot more women <laughs> in pediatrics, right? Like, um, yeah. and so it's very frustrating because like, so I'm I mean, going to stop talking in a sec, but like, no, I mean, I just, I think it's sad that like adult emergency medicine doctors do three to four years of residency and they only spend three months or three weeks on children. Every single study shows that you have better outcomes when you have a pediatric emergency medicine trained person treating your child. Like that's like a sure. given. But we're paid like fifty to one hundred thousand dollars less than adult EM doctors in New York, and so it's really hard to justify telling a med student or a resident to go in. Like, I can't be like going to pediatrics and then do an EM fellowship, which is what I did, which is better for the kid when they could make more by doing less training if they just do a three to four year EM residency. They can make a ton more and that's more time with their family and they can still treat children. The kind of standard line that I think that like people hear all the time is that kids don't make money for the hospital. Like we're actually losing money. That's so sad. Like, like you said, it's impossible to find a primary care doctor. It's because primary care doctors make less money. And I think that the new generation of doctors values their time and their money. And I think the old generation like didn't grow up thinking that. Like that didn't even, it didn't even occur to me. Like, when I was, well, it was, it
0: was the more cost, like familial yeah. and societal pressure too. It's it, like you too. have to have one of these jobs. This is a good job. Who cares about the money? It's a good job.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's also, I mean, it's just the cost of living just obviously has skyrocketed. And I was talking to my cousin who it's her and her husband, they're both doctors. And actually, I think my brother was said, because she grew up in California and he goes, would you ever want to move back to California? He goes, we can't afford that on like a two doctor salary. I mean, they're on more of like the, re- and we're going to get into like research versus private practice and stuff, but
0: like it obviously can vary. Yeah. We mm-hmm. talk a lot about yeah. aligning incentives. And again, if you want the best and the brightest, which I, objectively, as a human, I definitely want the best and the brightest, not only looking after me, but looking after my children, looking after their children. How are you going to incentivize those young generations coming up through the education system to say, here, we really want you to go into this field. We're not going to pay you. We're not going to value you and you're yeah, not going to enjoy not... your life, but you should really do that in an yeah. era where people are no longer tied by a lot of these traditional familial and societal values that used to push people into this kind of industry. It really makes me wonder. Who the future of medicine is going to be through no fault of their own, not by virtue of the fact that they aren't smart enough, they aren't hardworking enough, but their incentives are not aligned. If I think no, about I my think, kids,
3: I, it's hard. I think it's going to change, but it's mm. like the best and the brightest. You have to like really be like, I want to save the world and like, you know, Most like. You have to
1: have some family. Mo- I mean, not all. No, but no. It's a, it's a lot a thousand easier if percent. You have- yeah. You, if you your can't parents have, have the resources yeah. and the money to send you to how many years of college followed by med school. Because again, you look at the cost of college these days. I mean, you know, Berkeley, Brown, Princeton, what is it like $80,000 a year? So that's $240,000 right there. Then medical school, that's four years, right? So that's another, what, $50,000, $70,000 times four. And then you add on residency where you're, you know, barely able to break even and cover the cost of living. So if you don't have parents who have the resources to help you out, we're not going to be able to get the, the people who really want to go into these fields. They're like, hey, I'm going to go do invest in banking because I can get paid better. I mean, that's
3: like... Well, that, it's not cognitive dissonance. I, I totally agree with you. you. The the specialties in pediatrics that people use, the, the EM was like one of the most competitive fields. The cardiology is, was too. And now it's like sleep medicine and allergy. Why? Because you get paid a ton because it's out of pocket, right? Like you, it's not, you don't go through Medicare. Yeah, yeah. And also like your hours are nine to five. So I agree with you, you're not going to attract the best and the brightest. And it's funny, because you have these meetings, and i like, why aren't people going to pediatrics? And I was listening in on one recently. And I'm like, dude, why is no one talking about money? Like, no one. are yeah, like, the- oh, like it's because like the way that we talk. Like, I'm like, no.
0: What else was the, uh, the the conversation about? I mean, that should be item one through ten of that conversation. But it's the
3: same with teachers, and you're not going to get the best because they can't afford to do it. But I think it's really sad when a medical student says they can't afford to go into pediatrics. That's depressing because again, you want the best for your kids. Yes. That being right. said, the people who are out there who are doing it are all getting burnt out. A lot of my friends who used to be in pediatrics are now like joining tech companies. And and they're phenomenal doctors, but they're like, I could make a ton more working less and
2: that just means more time with my family and like normal nanny hours. And I'm like, I can't argue with you.
0: Right, right, right.
2: Nisha, that's so disheartening about the disparities between the pediatric compared to the adult provider care. I'd never heard that before, that's terrible. I will say in medicine and surgery in general, the way I think about this is hospital systems, especially the big academic systems, Are very reputation and research driven. They're nonprofits, but they're businesses. All hospitals are businesses. At academic institutions, the clout that basically is given to you if you're working there helps them offer you less of a salary because you're welcome. You're working at this esteemed institution. And it does serve as like something to train at these places, to work at these places, because they're CV building and will make you more competitive and hireable for other jobs that may pique your interest, that may be your dream job. But generally, hospitals mostly make money off of a few surgical services. There are some particularly profitable services where the hospital collects most of its money. And then there are other things that put it uh, more in the negative, like all of the medical care, the emergency care, unless it results in a number of procedures that then get billed to the insurance companies and get reimbursed. Admissions will get reimbursed, but they also cost a lot to have a patient in the hospital. So generally the medical care is subsidized by some of the surgical profit. And the hospital is, it's gotta have profits in general in order to maintain its standing as a nonprofit, but to be able to pay all of the administrators the staff, the nurses, the doctors, everyone involved, it, it, there's so many people who work in a hospital that are needed there in order to keep patients alive, get them in and out. It's expensive. As a result, the medical specialties tend to get paid pretty similarly at a certain institution in a certain place. And that varies throughout the country. And even like in New York, the pay is going to be different depending on which institution. But also a thing that majorly contributes to how you're reimbursed in an academic institution is what you bring to the table. So someone coming in for their first job with great training, but no experience, is probably going to be offered whatever the starting salary is. And they will tell you, like, this is the salary that everyone here gets. Mm -hmm. And you're like, this is the salary that everyone here gets. No, the answer is no. There's an assistant professor. And then the more research you do and the more time you spend, they can upgrade you to like an associate professor. And then if you have so many publications and you're invited to speak at all of these conferences and you're like a very prominent name everywhere, you get promoted to full professor. And your benefits are better. Your salary is, of course, much, much better. But that is not a realistic goal for someone just entering into the field. And in medicine, those people, the full professors, they have a lot of clout. So when they're applying, they're only applying for roles of leadership. And with that and with administrative titles, they get offered more money and often have a lot more time flexibility. It becomes much more of a nine to five and with surgical things. It depends on the particular job and the particular place. For example, our fellow in transgender surgery, who's a fully trained plastic surgeon, is currently applying for jobs and she's traveling to interviews all over the country. And she's had some really low offers, like under 180000 at a certain Which is place. Great we're paying attention. <laughs> yeah. And as opposed to like a very high offer, if maybe the job is much more involved or they're able to profit share in that way. So it really depends because if an institution is really desperate to start their transgender program, they may be more likely to create an enticing offer. The most important things to consider though are what are your Goals, like what's going to make you happiest. So I knew from the get go that money was not the thing that was going to make me happiest. What I value the most is time, time and peace of mind and being happy. So I knew I needed a place with a work-life balance where I would have time to see my husband and my kids on weekdays, (laughs) not just on weekends. And yes, I could be much more profitable if I chose not to see them and I worked more and did more surgeries, but I choose not to do that. I think I'm fairly compensated. And if I wanted to get compensated more, I could Work much more, but I'm not willing to do that. One of the most important things I've done is in residency, I didn't like to say no. And for a number of reasons, a lot of people would come to me whenever they needed something. And afterwards, I have learned to say no. I am so good at saying no. Sometimes I say no before I even like consider the thing. And then I'm like, Oh, okay, that's reasonable. Okay, I will do it. But That's a hard thing as a woman with people in leadership roles, sometimes dictating to me what they expect from me or what I need to do. And I will stand up and say, I'm sorry, no. And this is why if I do this, then this will happen and then I won't get to see my kids and then I'll be miserable. So I will quit and you won't have me at all. So no.
1: The other question I had was And again, this is my understanding. So correct me if I'm wrong. But again, like the difference between the private practice versus being at a hospital, because it seems like, you know, if you were a plastic surgeon doing boob jobs and nose jobs and Botox people tend to go and they'll just pay you whatever you want, like cash pay. It's like, oh yeah, I want to get my boobs done. Oh, it's, you know, $60,000. I have no idea what the cost, but I'm making it up. $60,000, great, here you go. I mean, and like you see plastic surgeons and it's like, I think it was maybe Morning Brew and they interviewed a random person on the street who's a plastic surgeon. Like how much do you make? I make five to $10 million a year, you know, where you see like (laughs) Harry Dubrow. Was it Harry Dubrow? Harry Dubrow, yeah. Harry Dubrow, Uh, right? Like the botched guy and they have their $25 million mansion. And I know like, obviously for you, you chose the specialty you did because I know you obviously want to help people and like there's you know more to it than just doing like a poop job and a nose job. But can we talk, I guess, a little bit about the difference between being at a research institution versus more about private practice?
2: Actually, I have a number of friends who are also plastic surgeons and have recently chosen to go into private practice and all of us toy with the idea of private practice. I think one major roadblock to going into private practice is money. Startup costs are quite high and you can do it or what a lot of people do is sometimes they'll pay someone who's established and has their own office, for example, they'll pay them to use that space one day of the week when that person isn't using it. So that person's offloading some of their costs and you get to presumably see a few patients, start to build your practice. And then maybe as you have money flowing in, you can hire more staff and start to pay yourself and them. But it's a big investment at first. And with surgery, if it's cash pay, that's great because you typically get paid before the surgery. Um, But if it's insurance-based, it's not like you bill it to the insurance company and then the next week they're like, all right, here you go. Sometimes it, it can be months. It could be a year. Sometimes they'll pay you and then they'll take it back. And then if you're billers or if it's you by yourself, if you're not vigilant and you don't notice this and don't ask for it back, or sometimes they'll pay you, but they'll downgrade how much they pay you. If you don't notice and ask questions. You can be working a lot harder, but not seeing that same Uh, reimbursement. And not everything's fair. Like you could do a breast reduction for a patient under some insurance, or you could do it under another insurance. And one can pay you a really reasonable amount of money for that procedure. And the other one can pay you like, $200. And that involves like three months of post-op care too. So every time you see them in recovery, all of those conversations and exams and everything that you do, you get paid through your surgeon's fee, the one-time fee, which is why a lot of people end up charging cash Instead, when they are in private practice, because it makes things more consistent and then they can set their own rates. They can say, "Okay, this takes me this many hours. This is how much I love or don't like the procedure. This is how much I am willing to accept in order to do it. And Mm -hmm. how much you make also parallels like how hard you're working. Usually in private practice, you're always on call for your patients and something can go wrong at any time, you have to be available. And if you want someone else to share that with you, you have to pay them a considerable amount. The more support that you want, the more investment that it takes. Also in private practice, if you're profitable, it's good to create a pay structure for your staff where they benefit and they're invested in the success of the business because it further incentivizes everyone to want everything to go great and have like the best practice ever.
1: I guess one last thing I wanted to also talk to you about, Nisha, your mom was also a medical doctor, but obviously working in Canada. And one of the things that you always hear is how the cost of medicine in Canada, first of all, like they do have free medical care. So I think the perception is that doctors in Canada must earn less, which is not the case. So
3: that is not the case. (laughs) Not necessarily the case. Uh, So this is just my personal opinion i think the incentives in canada and in many places in europe actually make sense so and again like call me a socialist when i i grew up and i believed healthcare was a right which i still think it is so and that's part of the reason i went into my specialty i didn't think like oh i need to make a ton of money i was more like who do i want to help because i could afford to go into it like that i thought of it as kind of like yeah. a calling but yeah so i grew up and i kind of thought that healthcare was a right and in canada the way that they Incentivize people to go into certain fields. Family medicine doctors make a good amount of money. And like you only need, I think it's like two years of post medical training to, or maybe three years to be a family medicine doctor. And here we're not incentivizing people to go into primary care. And so there's less primary care doctors. And the problem with that is when you don't have a primary care doctor, you're not focusing on preventative care. We're waiting till like, you know, people are actually sick. And then they go into the emergency room with primary care problems, right? Or like they can't find a primary care doctor. So they wait till something really bad happens. Then they go into the ER and people who don't have insurance go into the ER. And so what ends up happening is you use emergency services, which are very expensive. And like you'll you'll get all these people in the ER who don't have emergencies, right? But who have primary care problems. And I remember like, you know, would tell
1: me like people come in and like see you because they want to get a free pregnancy test or Tylenol. <laughs>
3: you're like, Well, if you were in Canada, you'd go to your family physician for that. Certain things would be covered. Like here, the incentives don't line up. And so like you're not motivated to focus on your preventative care. And so you wait till things get bad. And in America, most of the money in American healthcare is spent in the last like 10 years of life, you're not focusing on prevention and you're not focusing on children. People who are very fortunate Don't think that that affects them, but it does, because then when your kid has an emergency and you go into the emergency room and there's one person on, because that's how the hospital is staffed, if they're, you know, burdened with all of these kids who need Tylenol, whose parents, like, don't know how much to give them, if there's an actual emergency that comes in, you might miss it or you might be, like, three hours late in getting to it because you're dealing with all these other things. And so it's like the great equalizer. Like at some point you are affected by all these things. And it does make sense to focus on prevention. It does make sense to incentivize people to go into primary care and into pediatrics. I don't know. I I find it really frustrating because I think like the incentives are so misaligned. It's sad. And like, I mean, it is a problem right now, right? Like people aren't going into it. So like it's getting worse and worse and worse. If everyone goes into to specialties that are not reimbursed by insurance and because they have regular schedules, like who's going to do everything else?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, we don't need like a bazillion allergists and sleep doctors. We need the people that can actually, I mean, we need some. I mean, you but do, but like, it's
3: a, yeah, med students are becoming more savvy and they're asking questions that like, I would never ask. People ask me how much I make like every day. And I'm like, wait, really? <laughs> I never asked people that. And it's funny because like, I don't think it wouldn't have changed anything, but like, it would have been nice to know. People are talking about money. They're talking about hours. They're talking about yeah. like, negotiating and
0: yeah
2: the conversation you know, on is one hand, much more
3: I'm like,
0: open than it used to well, be. on one hand i'm like how dare
3: you and then i'm like wait that's actually like very like, I wish I'd good asked job that, yeah. yeah it's not even about like the money and i only say this because this is like a finance podcast it's more about the justice of it all and the incentives if a general pediatrician makes between 100 and 150 or 100 200k it's really hard to like get more pediatricians Or like if pediatric EM pays low to mid, whatever, 200s, and then you have like EM, which makes a lot more. Like why would anyone go into, you know?
0: From a theoretical standpoint, the way I think about money and compensation for what you do is, listen, at the end of the day, the money is a very tangible, very measurable representation of the value that you are adding. And I think you would be hard pressed to find Mm -hmm. anyone who could make the argument that either of you are not adding tremendous value to everyone's life. And so to have, like you said, that cognitive dissonance and that huge disconnect between that number and what you do, that should narrow, right? It may not always be perfectly aligned, but it should not be so much wider than these other industries. And I think that that is that's what you're talking about. It is that sense of injustice. That, that yeah, sense that's what like bugs you. Doesn't make sense. But also like what you were talking about, thinking of incentives. What I don't
3: understand is if you have a person who's super stressed and super tired, do you really think they're going to be able to provide the best care to the person who you think is the most important person in your life? Like, yeah. and that's what I don't.
0: Yeah. Or it just about money. Like, I function under really high manufactured stress. I do well under that environment. (laughs) It's like very like whatever masochistic, but I don't want the doctor who is going to save my child's life to be stressed because they're like, I I I need to go pick up my kid because uh, the daycare is closing because I didn't get paid enough money to like be able to afford childcare to be able to put food on my table. Like those are the wrong reasons to be stressed. Be stressed because this is an emergent situation, not because your quality of
1: life is so low. Well, and I guess the last thing which just really bugs me is this this cost of living adjustment thing because I think you had said what one hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, like that seems great in New York City. How far does that go when taxes are obviously pretty high? And then the cost of just having an apartment—I mean, the amount of money you spend for every square foot is higher than like anywhere else in the U.S. I mean come on, to be like proud that you're paying the median when it's the most, well, I guess it just recently fell from the most expensive city in the world. What now? It's like five, but it's about being able to afford the basic necessities, which is a roof over your head, a bedroom for your child and child totally care. For your
3: you and $200,000 sounds like a lot of money, but when you're paying off like hundreds of thousands not dollars not in me, loans, right. oh, it's not. The- yeah.
0: It can be a calling, but it doesn't have to be a Sacrifice, You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't have to be this, like, penalizing thing. Yeah, right? I'm also, like, I'm
3: actually totally so. okay with it being a sacrifice, too, if we have a public health care system. And, like, you know, no, it's true. Like, if, if every single person who I treat doesn't have to pay for it, and, like, every kid gets the best health care up. Like, I think that's mm. reasonable. But if, you know, a hospital administrator is making, like, $10 million a year, that sucks. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Point. I agree with the administrator thing and with a lot of the points. I think there are pluses and minuses to socialized medicine because, yes, medicine for all, treatment for all is great, but I don't think we're ever going to get to treatment for everyone and the best treatment for everyone. Because mm. one of the things with universal healthcare involves a lot of waiting for non-emergent things, even urgent, but not emergent things. You know, sometimes they get pushed up. But for example, in Canada, a lot of people end up paying cash if they want their surgery. Yeah, sooner I, I, think, or I, think, I think that's okay, though, if they, can, if they want their
3: surgery sooner and it's not essential. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think here, mm-hmm. a lot of people who need essential things aren't getting them, and that's a problem. Kids who need right. asthma medication, like can't get it or can't see a doctor or like the worst is in, in FQHDs or like in like more publicly funded primary care centers, there's like three or four hour wait times. And so you're trying, but if you don't get enough money to like run the place, what are you supposed to do? And so I just, I really think we need to like look long and hard at our incentives. And to be clear, I'm not like 100% advocating for like universal healthcare right so now. I agree with you. I don't think we're going to get there, but I, I do think we need a basic level of coverage that we don't have. Mm-hmm. And unless we realign our incentives, we're not going to get the best healthcare system we possibly can. I think that there needs to be, we need to close that like cognitive dissonance. We need to like understand that medicine's a calling. It's a job and you need to also look at how you're going to recruit the best and the brightest for the positions
2: that you want to fill with the best and the brightest. Yeah, we need to stop
0: the brain drain. And
2: we need to shift incentives to primary care, preventative Mm -hmm. care, and re-educate the public too.
1: Yeah. No, this has been so fascinating. I mean, I learned so much. I feel like there's so much valuable information here for, again, for our listeners, because not all of them want to go into (laughs) investment banking. A lot of them are looking at different things. And I do think it's important to understand what the options are, and if we have a listener who can help try to figure out how the heck we get the American healthcare system back on track, that's all other. That's no, I'm really I going to do a lips.
0: conversation with someone who works in healthcare finance. So I think this is going to be a really interesting, mm-hmm. uh, there's going to be two sides of that coin. You guys who are in the trenches, so to speak, who are dealing with patients, who are thinking about the system, and you guys see all the places where the system is broken. And then looking at the people who are allocating private capital to either try to realign those incentives or profit from it and potentially break them further. So I think it's going to be really yeah. interesting to see that dichotomy and and, and put those two episodes. I back think
3: to it. for first, it's funny though because I think the people who are considering healthcare as a job, you don't have to just think of like doctors, right? Like I actually have a yes. friend who's a nurse practitioner, and she actually makes a good amount more than I do and works regular hours. She sees it as her job, and she also feels like she's helping people, and she feels very fulfilled. And yeah. so, like, another thing to consider is there's a whole variety of other fields in healthcare people can consider. And also, like, the difference between the specialties in healthcare is almost the same as the difference between different careers. Like, you, you know, yeah. a lawyer and an investment banker and a pediatrician Mm -hmm. and a dermatologist and like private practice versus working at like a public hospital like those are all like very very different everything has different motivating factors and it's like important to think about
1: well again it's like what we're doing within the financial services industry like if you're an investment banker it's very different than if you're working in sales and trading versus if you're working in asset management like it's like actually we had uh, my friend Will Smith here yesterday and he's like it's mind-boggling to me like I learned from you know watching you guys that people don't study finance when they're in school they can go in like like Jen is an English major and I was like but even if you were studying finance, it still might not be even remotely applicable to what you actually do on the job. So like, okay. sure, you could be studying accounting and all the stuff. But then like, if you're a trader doing these like crazy swaption stuff that like you never heard of in school, that's not going to really help you that much. So it's kind of the same thing where, yeah, if you're a plastic surgeon, it's going to look very different than if you're a pediatrician or versus a pediatric ER doctor versus a dermatologist. Like there's so many things. This was so interesting and so fascinating. And um, I love you guys so much. I miss you. I'm like, we used to get to see you all the time. Move and back now to it's, New York. <laughs> yes, I second
0: that. No, thank <laughs> you guys so much. This was invaluable and I'm just blown away. You were both so impressive and so knowledgeable and well-spoken. So thank you so much for contributing to this. We really appreciate you guys. Thanks
3: for too. having us. Thank
0: you.
1: Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more.